If you have a Bible, we're going to be in James 2. My name's Chris. I am an intern here at The Ring, and uh, I'm very excited, I'm very blessed, I'm very privileged to be able to do this, to be given the opportunity to do so, uh, to just dig into the Word with y'all, to just sort of pick it apart and see what God has in store for us. Um, So, if you've been coming to The Ring very much, or really any church at all, you know that we start with songs. Uh, just praising the Lord together, uh, proclaiming truth to each other. Uh, we go into the scripture, learn, then we respond with some more songs. And the whole thing is worship, but I just want to, I guess, bring awareness to the fact that these songs are very intentionally chosen, uh, and we sing them for a reason, and uh, I'll get into the reason why these songs were chosen in a little bit, um, but I just wanted to put that on your radar. So, we're going to keep walking through James, as we have been for the past month, and before we get to the text, we're going to go through a little bit of uh, historical context, um, and we're going to go through the who, what, when, where, why slides that we've been going through, so if we could get those. All right, so who? The letter is written by James the Just. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church and the brother of Jesus. Um, The what is, it's a letter to Jewish Christian house churches that are scattered throughout the region. Um, When? It was written in the early to mid-40s, the oldest New Testament book. That puts it being written about 10 to 15 years after the resurrection uh, of Jesus. So it really is relatively right after. Um, So the where, it's uh, written to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, Mediterranean, Asia, Minor, and Europe. And then the why, what is uh, James trying to accomplish? He's trying to pastor his people through difficulty with this message that no matter what is going on, uh, you must live out your faith. Uh, And that why is very apparent in the passage we're going to look at tonight. Um, so yeah, the, we go through these slides every week, not just so you have a good chunk of biblical trivia, so you can win next time you play that game. Uh, but we, we are trying to uh, sort of set ourselves up to succeed when we read the text. Uh, with this historical background knowledge, we can sort of get at what James is really trying to accomplish in this letter, what he's really trying to tell these Jewish Christians that are scattered throughout um, following the resurrection. Uh, So I'm going to try to sort of squish it all together and apply it to the text real quick. So James is writing to these people who um, firsthand experienced Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. Uh, And these people are still very, I guess, not far removed from it time-wise. Like I said, it's been 10, 15 years uh, uh, compared to all the years that them and their ancestors were just in bondage to to, uh, the law. That 10 to 15 years is nothing. Uh, So why this matters is because uh, when a lot of people look at James, they immediately notice that there's just a lack of theology. There's a lack of teaching about grace. There's a lack of just Jesus in the book. He only mentions Jesus by his name once outside of the intro itself, and, and that was earlier in chapter 2. Um, and then when you, you hold James up to any of the letters of Paul and compare them, you sort of get underwhelmed with what James is saying uh, Paul is so lofty, and he's describing all these theological truths. He's teaching on the cross. He's teaching on grace. And then James is uh, very practical. They call it the, the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's just almost a Christian living sort of guide. Uh, but um, we have to understand that the two audiences are very different. James is writing to these Jewish Christians uh, who grew up Uh, knowing who God was, who Yahweh was, who grew up hearing about the prophecies of the coming Messiah, 
who grew up enslaved to the Mosaic law, uh, who grew up just in that old covenant mindset. Paul's writing to Gentile Christians who may or may not have ever even heard of Yahweh. So we have James writing this very practical, uh, almost guidebook, like how to live out your faith. And very implicitly, there's the gospel. Uh, It's on his mind. It's on the mind of his readers, uh, even though he may not explicitly come out and say it. So where Paul had to teach about the cross, where Paul had to, uh, you know, talk about grace, talk about uh, saving faith, James instead knows his readers. He knows that they all know this stuff already. They're, they're experts, if you will. So he doesn't have to mention uh, the cross. He doesn't have to mention all these things. Uh, and this is sort of why we sang the songs we just did to put us in that gospel mindset, uh, to sing that Christ is risen, he's trampled over death, uh, he's, he's made us one with God again, uh, to sing that we've been washed white as snow because of what Jesus did, that he's paid our debts. Um, we, are, we are singing these truths and putting ourselves in that gospel-centered mindset. Um, so, so hopefully you guys are there. Um, as we dig into the text, because I think uh, when we don't see the name of Jesus, when we don't uh, hear of the cross in, in these New Testament texts, it's easy just to dismiss it. Um, but it's there. It's, it's on James's mind. It's on his reader's mind. Hopefully now it's on our mind. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read the full text. We're going to read verses 14 through 26. Uh, and yeah, let's go. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and uh, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, this passage, organizationally, how it's structured, uh, it's probably the most concise, the most concentrated on one topic that James gets uh, in the whole letter. He likes to sort of jump around uh, and hit random topics and then write a chapter, then hit those same topics. But in these, in these uh, verses, he's, he's very specific, he's very... Uh, he knows the message he's trying to get across, and he communicates it very bluntly and very, uh, I guess, very well. Um, so throughout the passage, uh, James calls faith without works. He calls it useless. He implies that it can't save. Um, he calls it ineffective, and most famously, he refers to it as dead. So to, we're going to sort of break the text into two. Uh, first, we're going to look at 14 through 20, and we're going to call that the section on dead faith. And then after that, we're going to look at 21 through 26. And there, James uses some illustrations that his audience would be familiar with to show what living faith is. Um, so, dead faith and living faith. Um, so, to fully understand dead faith, uh, which is how we're starting. Uh, we have to understand what James means by works. Um, 
are they just good deeds of morality or are they something more? Um, so the two, I guess, illustrations that are contained within the dead faith section sort of give us a, a, a twofold working definition of works as James understands it. Um, part one of that definition is found in verses 14 through 17. And we'll go ahead and word that as uh, works are the natural product of our identity in Christ. Uh, they are outward expressions of our inward state. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read 14 through 17, try to break it down, and uh, we'll arrive at, at that conclusion and then move from there. So back at 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So in this illustration, we have a person who comes upon, uh, who James refers to them as a brother or sister, uh, and notices that they are without proper clothing, that they don't have daily food, um, and these two things, clothing and food, are emphasized throughout the Bible as what's needed just for sustainability. Um, in First Timothy, for example, Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Uh, in Genesis, Jacob promises to worship the Lord if he has bread to eat and clothing to wear. And when Jesus is teaching on anxiety, he says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? So if, peop- if Jesus is preaching... Uh, to people and telling them not to be anxious about those things. And that means people of his day are being anxious about those things. So we know that the, the first century uh, Jews, the first century Jewish Christians, uh, they know that these things are important. They see them as very valuable. So when this person walks up and sees someone who is poorly clothed, who doesn't have food to eat, um, and says, uh, go in peace, be warmed and filled and then doesn't do anything about it, essentially that person is insulting the other person. They're, they are saying, go, and, go clothe and feed yourself. Um, their inaction is just a very insulting thing, uh, knowing the importance of clothing and food. Um, so essentially what, what we have here are words of compassion. Uh, go and cl- uh, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Those are very compassionate words, but they're not coupled with uh, acts of compassion. So just like faith without works is dead, we have this compassionate saying that's without a responding action. So that is worthless. It's useless. Um, So James is drawing this comparison uh, between compassion uh, and acts of compassion and then faith and faith-driven works. Um, so I think it's very intentional what he's trying to do because uh, to, to meet the needs of this person to act out in compassion the person needs to be acting from a place of love they need to uh, be ready to serve ready to give uh, just selflessly and come from a place that's very I guess self uh, non-self-reliant so, James is intentionally calling attention to the fact that um, these compassionate works, the, the, even faith-driven works, are driven by love. And love isn't something we can simply just muster up. It's not something we can will ourselves to do. Uh, it comes from the Spirit working within us. It, it's cultivated as a fruit of the Spirit. Um, so, so, yeah, we can't will ourselves to love. Um, any, any legalistic pursuit uh, of the, the greatest commandment to, to love the God, or love God, not be God. He is be God. But to love God and uh, love others. If we, if we try to fulfill that commandment um, apart from the Spirit, we're going to fail and we're going to be frustrated. And uh, so James is saying... Uh, for works to be here, they need to be cultivated. They need to come from inside first. 
It needs to be an inward, an inward uh, reality before it's an outward reality. Uh, so, so the way we go about, I guess, having these, these fruit of the Spirit love, I guess, manifested out is to abide, to pursue Jesus, to let Him and the Spirit just sanctify us. Uh, we have to be focused on Him, His Word, uh, to know what He wants us to do, to be obedient. Um, so, ultimately, these works that James is talking about, they're the natural product of what's already inside of us. They're the natural product of our identity in Christ, and it's only by the working of the Holy Spirit that we're able to uh, complete these works. Um, so, that's the first part of the definition of works. Is uh, Works are the natural product of our identity in Christ, outward expression of inward reality. Um, the second part, which we'll pull from 18 to 20, uh, is that works are the only true evidence of real living faith. And these two, this two-party definition, they're not separate. They work together. Uh, you can't separate them. And just so happens that it, it sort of breaks down well in that way through the text. Um, so they, they definitely work together. Um, so the second part of the definition works are the only true evidence of real faith. And we'll, we'll talk about uh, real faith, living faith, when we get to that section. But right now we're going to read uh, verse 18. It says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So if we refer back to part one of the definition of works, uh, we know that they're outward expressions of inward reality. So when we have those works showing up, when we are working for the, the goodness of the kingdom, uh, for the glory of God, uh, those works in turn are evidences of what's going on inwardly. So it's like a cycle. Uh, the inward becomes outward, and the outward points to the inward. Um, so, yeah, it, it works together, like I said, that two-part definition. Uh, true living faith and works, they're inseparable because what we do reflects who, who we are. Um, so I have an illustration, and it's about all the kids that sort of run around here. Um, and one of the best things I think about the kids uh, is their imagination. Uh, you go up to some of them and ask them just who they are, and their answers will range anywhere from, I'm a cat meow, or to, like, I'm Batman, uh, or I'm a motorcycle, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll just make something up, you know, and ultimately they, they need to imagine that. Like, that is a, they are pretending because it's not true. Um, so, let's say one of them, after service tonight, comes up to you and you, and you ask them, hey, who are you? And they go, I'm a dinosaur. Um, you can know that they're not a dinosaur because of what they do, because of the fruit that they're showing you. Um, the reality of their identity is that they're an image-bearing child of God. Uh, they are not a dinosaur. They are not... <laughs> uh, the, one, they're talking. Dinosaurs can't do that. That is not a fruit of being a dinosaur. Uh, they, they, I'm pretty sure dinosaurs can't recognize that they're dinosaurs because their brains are the size of a peanut. Um, so we know just from what they're doing and uh, just the fruit of who they are, like in their actions, they're not running around eating people. You know, we know that because they don't do the things the dinosaurs naturally do because they are dinosaurs, that they aren't dinosaurs. Everything else points to the fact that they're an image bearer. They're a human being. So in the same way, as Christians, uh, we profess to be Christians, but unless we're acti like actively cultivating the fruit that ultimately turns into action, no one will be able to say, that's a Christian. No one will be able to say, he's doing good works. There's something different about him. 
or she is being selfless. What's up with that? Because that's not how the world works. We should be standing out by the works we're doing. And those works are ultimately coming from our identity. It's from the fruit that's within us. Um, So yeah, uh, we're going to go ahead and turn to Matthew 7. And go ahead and keep your finger in James because we're going to get back to that. But Matthew 7, um, Jesus is talking along the same lines. He's addressing false prophets. Um, And uh, it's always fun to let Jesus preach whatever text you're going through. Um, So, so yeah, Matthew 7. uh, It says, starting in verse 16, uh, you will recognize them by their fruits. That's the false prophets. Are grapes gathered from thorn, bush, uh, thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the, di- the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is not saying you will recognize them by... Uh, the words they say. Jesus is not saying you will recognize them uh, solely because of what they know about me, Jesus. Um, Ultimately, he's calling people to look for the evidence, to look at these people that are claiming to be prophets and say, are their actions matching up with what they're saying? Um, Are their actions reflecting their true identity? Because um, every time we make a profession of faith, we're, we're professing that that is our identity. If I say I'm a born-again Christian, that's my identity. Um, so it, is the fruit matching what they're saying? That's ultimately what Jesus is calling people to look at. So the fruit, the works... Um, if works only referred to the good deeds that someone was doing, it would ultimately point back to themselves. It wouldn't point to Jesus. It wouldn't point to the Holy Spirit within them. Um, so rather, works have to be deeper. They have to be rooted in something much deeper. Uh, to, to, for, for you to do something and it to strike a chord um, and to point to... For, your action to point to Jesus. It has to be rooted in Jesus. Um, so, so James isn't saying you need to be doing more. You need to be doing, doing, doing. He is saying you need to live out your faith, but the focus there is the faith. He, he's, calling, he's challenging people to examine, am I living out what I'm saying? Am I living out my true identity? Uh, and if it doesn't match up, then he's calling people to focus on that faith. Because ultimately, that's where our, our works are coming from. That's where our fruit is coming from. Um, so, yeah, let's look at, uh, let's go back to James and look at verses 19 and 20. Um, so James continues, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So, James compares the people he's writing to to demons, and that probably didn't go over very well. But he, uh, he loves them, so it's acceptable, I guess. Uh, he's, he, he talks in almost the same hyperbolic tone that Jesus does. He's very... Uh, over-exaggerating and has very lofty words. So it's probably uh, Mary and Joseph's fault. Uh, so, uh, so here James is trying to uh, show the difference between belief and faith. Uh, to show that they're not one and the same. Um, so even demons rightly believe in the identity of who God is. They know who the one true God is. They know who Jesus is. They know what he did on the cross. They know what he's accomplished. 
they probably know who God is better than we do at times. Um, however, they're not, they don't have living faith. Um, so what does it take for that belief to become faith? Uh, Dallas Willard describes faith as belief in action. So it takes that action, and it ties in again. Uh, so sip, simply recognizing facts as true, that cannot save you. Um, otherwise, the demons would be our spiritual brothers. And obviously their actions do not match up with that belief they have. They're not living out the truth. Um, so ultimately, James is communicating that uh, Faith requires right belief, but it's what you do with that right belief. So if we truly believe that Jesus has uh, set us free from sin, that he has uh, released us from the bondage of the law and, and has, uh, has reconciled us to God, and we put our faith in that and we reconcile from our, our sins and turn to him and trust in that, then there will be action. There, there will be uh, just a natural longing to glorify the Lord with what we do. It, it's part of our new identity. Um, so throughout this whole section on dead faith, James is communicating that dead faith isn't faith at all. It's, it's, it's either just belief or it's empty words. Or it could be anything, but unless our faith has the works that are backing it up, it's useless. It doesn't point to God, and that's ultimately the job of our of all our actions. We we are we were created to glorify the Lord, to live in harmony and peace within that that truth. So, dead faith is not faith at all. So, it gets happier. Uh, We're going to look at living faith now. And that's in verses 21 through 26. So, I'm going to read 21 through 24. Um, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So this section of the text has given... A lot of people, a lot of troubles. And it's because of the phrasing in verse 21, Abraham, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Um, Martin Luther calls James the epistle of straw because he thinks, uh, falsely as we've talked about, that it, it, it has nothing to do with Jesus. That it, it's not concerned with the cross. It's not concerned with saving grace. Um, and he'll point to this phrasing right here to show that, that James is preaching a works justification type theology. Um, however, Martin Luther's wrong. Uh, even though he's the father of the Reformation, he's wrong. Um, so, so this word justified that James used, uh, it, the Greek of it, has two, two meanings. It can mean two different things. The first is that uh, ju- you're justified and you're declared innocent. You're declared righteous. It's more so a forensic type or a, a legal type of definition. Uh, and the second definition is that when your works or that your faith is justified and that it is proven. So your works prove your faith, like we just talked about. Um, in that first definition, the declared innocent and righteous, uh, that was Luther's understanding. That's what he applies to this text. And that's what Paul mostly writes about. He uses that first definition of justification. 
because he's writing all about grace, and, and he, he knows that uh, we're saved uh, through, through grace alone. Our faith in that uh, is ultimately what saves. Um, so that idea of declared innocent and righteous is not what James is trying to say here. Um, James is rather pointing to the second definition that uh, Abraham's act here, it, it just pointed to that initial justification. It pointed to his identity, uh, to his faith itself. Um, and we can know that because in verse 21, they talk about Abraham, the event in Abraham's life when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Um, that happens in Genesis 22. Uh, and and it's, it is well after uh, Ab- Abram becomes Abraham. And in, in Genesis 15, we have the, the account of Abram putting his faith in the Lord and the Lord declaring him righteousness or righteous. Uh, so that is that initial justification uh, that Luther thinks is not being taught. That event in Genesis 15. James is pointing to Genesis 22, where years and years after that initial justification, here's Abraham, no longer Abram because he has a new identity. He's Abraham. Here's Abraham uh, hearing the call of the Lord to sacrifice his son, trusting in the goodness and the promises of the Lord. He, he takes Isaac up and uh, is willing to sacrifice him because he trusts in the, in the goodness of God and that promise that he made that, that a, na- a great nation would come out of Isaac. And God spares him. And ultimately, that act, that willingness, is pointing to that, that justification that happened years before when he, when he was Abram, uh, and that forensic, that, that legal justification, he was declared righteous. Uh, when that happened, uh, this, the willingness to sacrifice Isaac is pointing back to that. So, so we, know, we know that right here, the, what trips a lot of people up, we know that that is not what James is trying to do. Ultimately, he's going back to that second part of the definitional works, that our works are evidence for our identity. And, and that is definitely true in this account uh, of Abraham offering up his son Isaac. Uh, so I think we can definitely relate to the story of Abraham uh, as believers because we, we haven't all been called to sacrifice our son. You know, but we've all experienced that transformation if we are believers. We've all been, uh, our, name, our physical name may not have shifted like it did from Abram to Abraham, but our identity did. So, uh, for example, four years ago, my identity was Chris Cole, sinner, uh, enemy of God. I was incapable of any sort of righteousness, any good deeds. Um, that would glorify the Lord. Uh, and then on Christmas Eve of 2008, uh, I surrendered to the Lord. I repented from my sin. And in that moment, the Lord gave me a new identity. I went from sinner to saint. I went from enemy of God to friend of God, just like Abraham. Uh, I went from incapable of doing any righteous works to uh, being declared righteous because of him. Uh, and and whether or not you can remember you can remember the moment that that happened to you, uh, we can relate because that's our reality as believers. Um, just like Abram to Abraham, we we are shifting identities. Um, so yeah, let's let's go ahead and talk about Rahab a little bit. Uh, the last two verses, I'm going to go ahead and read them. And in the same way was not also uh, Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, 
so also faith apart from works is dead. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I like to think of uh, this letter being read in the house churches and uh, they're, they're recalling uh, the, the father of their faith, Abraham, and his, his big sacrifice and just that victorious moment. And then when they get to Rahab, they just sort of stop and like, Rahab next to Abraham? Uh, it, it's not uncommon of that day to see just those huge social differences. That's why James addressed it in the idea of partiality. So we have Abraham, the father of the Hebrews, the father of the Israelites. Uh, his faith held up against a Canaanite prostitute's faith. Uh, she, not only was, were the Canaanites the enemies of the Israelites, uh, she was, uh, her profession was seen as one of the lowest professions that someone could hold. So, uh, I think James was trying to test them a little bit to see if they were listening earlier uh, to say, if you're showing partiality, you're committing a sin. And uh, then he sort of sets them up to be like, did I get you, you know? So, so either way, uh, I think James is, again, just showing that God's not partial. He can, he can take uh, Abraham, he can take Rahab, and through the same just saving grace of God, uh, declare them as righteous because of their faith. Uh, and that's just such a beautiful picture, like, for James to sort of juxtapose those two people together. Um, so uh, the story of Rahab's in Joshua 2, and I'm not going to turn there, um, but if you want to read up on it later, you can do that. Uh, so she was a Canaanite woman who had been hearing the stories of Yahweh acting and performing miracles and saving his people. She heard about the Red Sea parting and just the things God was doing through Moses. Uh, and through, through the stories that she heard, she trusted in him. She believed that he was the one true God. She uh, found saving faith in him. And then come along these these Israelite spies that want to destroy the city. And so she takes them in as an act of faith. She, she takes them in, and in that moment, she's not saved. In that moment, she's not declared righteous. But rather, in that moment, she's acting out her faith. Uh, she's allowing her inward identity to become an outward expression. Uh, and ultimately, that points back inward. Uh, so we look at Rahab and we see this picture that we've been observing this whole time. Uh, and in this whole living faith section, we see that living faith is a faith that works hand in hand with works. You can't separate them. Um, living faith naturally produces works, and those works in turn point back to our faith. So it's a constant cycle. So going through this, this passage is easy, and like we can stand there and go like, yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, but when it comes to time to, I guess, apply it, uh, it can be tough because on one hand, we don't want to just, I don't want to commission you all to just go out and do, because ultimately you're going to try to do uh, based on your own willpower, but also you don't want to just... Uh, Leave it with no practicality, no application. So hopefully we can close with a little bit of, uh, I guess, practical stuff from the scripture. Um, so this passage, like we said, is not primarily concerned with works. It's concerned with living out your faith, but the faith is the focus. So if, if, if you feel the Lord convicting you, if you're looking inward and seeing that... Uh, you've been putting your faith elsewhere than Christ, that you've been finding hope in something other than Jesus, that you've, uh, you've uh, just been ignoring the Spirit and His, his callings on your life. Uh, like, it, it's not a moment. You don't need to panic. Uh, uh, it's very easy to, I guess, turn away from yourself and turn to the Lord. 
Um, and the key is abiding. And this is a very ring sermon, I think, because we've hit identity, fruits of the Spirit, and abiding. So uh, sorry if you're tired of this, but it, it should never get uh, old because we can always use it. Um, so yeah, all we need to do is take that deliberate step forward. We need to face God and, and sort of just, be, just present ourselves open-handed uh, and let him sort of strip away our idols. And as, un, as uncomfortable as that may be, um, it, it's necessary for having this living type faith um, that constantly points to him through our works. Um, so we're going to go ahead and read James, or not James, John 15, because we're talking about abiding. Uh, just verses 4 and 5 for now. Um, so it says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So from apart, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We, we, don't have work. we don't have those good works that are pointing towards him. Um, so all it takes is abiding. And it, it, that may seem oversimplified, but it really isn't. Uh, we just need to be, uh, allow the Spirit to guide us toward Him. Um, we were created to be dependent on God. Uh, our heart's most natural posture is when it's facing God, when it's open to uh, what He has for us. So um, it really is, it's a simple truth, but it's not always an easy truth. Uh, but it takes action. We've got to take that step forward. We have to uh, We have to uh, pray more. We have to interact with the scriptures more. Uh, If you don't know where to start with the Bible or if you don't know what to do with this book, then you can come to summer community groups where we have six different discussions on how to interact with this. Uh, We need to be going to our community, our fellow believers, uh, being open with each other, practicing confession, practicing accountability. Um, Anything that will... Keep our minds focused on Him instead of the world, on Him instead of our flesh, um, and will help us, I guess, be taken captive by Him. Uh, so, yeah, the Lord wants to sanctify us. He wants us to do many good works. And uh, the good news is that He's sort of set us up to succeed. Um, the way I'm going to sort of end this is I'm going to read a bunch of uh, just different scriptures uh, or pieces of scriptures, some verse verses, and the the references are going to be up on the screen. I don't want y'all to turn there because it's a lot. But if you want to write them down and then go back and study them, that would be great. Uh, sort of read them in their own context. If you just sort of want to sit and listen, that would also be great. Maybe I'll I'll tweet the references or something later, so you can have them anyway. But yeah. I'm going to go ahead and read them. Uh, Romans 1, 4 through 6. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 16 through 19. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as For just uh, as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
Hebrews 6, 9-12. through 12, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, uh, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His worksmanship, uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works, uh, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Galatians five twenty two through 24 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six through 58 The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 8-15 And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Skip to verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us uh, will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God uh, because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Titus 3, 3-8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through uh, Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for the people. And then John 15, 1-5. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does, does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, uh, the band can go ahead and come back up. Uh, I hope those verses sort of leave you encouraged. Uh, We are... As believers, we are equipped to do good works. We are given all we need. Um, We just have to uh, quiet our hearts, focus on Him, abide, and just follow in obedience with the Spirit. We're going to sing a couple songs uh, that sort of uh, communicate our need for dependence on Him. Uh, And I hope... I hope we can all respond together uh, just in joy and uh, in gladness for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Uh, And uh, yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and pray and then.
we'll sing and worship together. Father God, uh, we love you. Uh, we, we thank you for all that you do for us, all that you've done for us, all that you're going to do. We thank you for your word that is divinely inspired, that it's actually your word, Lord, that you have revealed yourself through it. And we thank you for sending your son, Lord, uh, to, to fulfill the law when we could not. Um, we thank you for him taking our debt upon his shoulders and being nailed to the cross and dying for us uh, and for resurrecting, Lord, so that our faith can be true, that we can be reconciled to you, that we can have a relationship with you, and that we can accept the new identity that you've given us. That is the identity of a saint, uh, the identity of one who is able to do good works, one who is able to uh, just glorify you and live in peace with you, Lord. We don't have to fear anymore because we're no longer enemies of you, but rather we're friends, we're sons, we're daughters, um, and you've, you've declared us righteous because of what your son has done. Uh, we just love you and we thank you uh, for the text tonight, for all the reminders that uh, it's not what we do uh, that affects how we're received by you, Lord, but rather it's what you've done that allows us to be received. So thank you for grace. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us, Lord. And thank you for transforming us uh, inwardly first so we can outwardly just express that through love and goodness. And uh, hopefully every work we do uh, is able to point someone towards you. Um, We love you, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.